Welcome to the Public Morality. Several years ago, speaking at the historic Holman United Methodist Church in Los Angeles, California, about the seminal event in 1963, an older African-American gentleman asked, Don't you think it's worse for black people today than it's ever been? I responded, I wouldn't say so. Slavery was pretty awful. The gentleman quickly responded, oh no, what's going on today is much worse than slavery. Well, after the gentleman's last remark, I knew there was no point continuing the discussion. But that encounter has always stayed with me because the subtext reflected on America's unresolved issues of race and racism. Very few, if any, of America's key issues are not influenced by racism. What exactly is racism? Is it Bull Connor and his infamous police dogs and fire hoses? Is it the Ku Klux Klan? Or something more seductive? To discuss the topic of racism and its impact on the American landscape, I'm joined by Professor Ronald Hall. Professor Hall teaches at the College of Social Sciences at Michigan State University. Professor Ronald Hall, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Well, let's begin this conversation by having you define uh, how you define uh, racism in our public discourse. Racism is an American DNA. It has existed since the antebellum period. And I think that we're at a point now where we have something which I refer to as anti-racism racism. And because racism is no longer popular as it might have been 25 or 30 years ago, politicians and those who believe in uh, the ideology of racism have found ways to continue carrying out racist policies at the same time they're framing their issues in an anti-racist kind. So they appear to not be engaging in racist behaviors when in fact they are. In your view, sir, are we guilty of uh, commingling race prejudice with racism, or do those two mean the same thing? Well, race prejudice and racism overlap. Uh, uh, race prejudice is more of a thought. Racism is something that is more related to an or behavior. It may be indicative of a policy, but today it puts people of color, particularly African-Americans, disadvantage as pertains to politics and power. Politics dictates the quality of life. And so there's always been a struggle for that. So when we're talking about, so, uh, so the conversation about systemic racism at its core, it, 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 it is about power in your view. Would that be correct, sir? Oh, it's no doubt about power, wealth, control, I just finished reading a book by Dr. Anthea Butler called White Evangelical Racism. And it talk, the book describes a lot of what I had already known, but the fact that she could put it in a literary source uh, gives me license to make the point without seeming a little bit biased. But in fact, racism is as endemic to religion, Christian religion in this country as anything else, un unfortunately. And when we had the issue of slavery in this country being bandied about, well, it was religion that justified slavery for many people by associating Ham with African-Americans who were born supposedly to live in servitude. 
Then along came Reconstruction when African Americans were gaining political power. Again, along comes the Christian church, the Protestant Christian church in particular, that rationalized taking power, political power, away from African Americans. And now here we are again in the 20th century, 21st century, and we find that religious movements vis-a-vis the evangelical movement who have elected the 45th president, despite his transgressions, his overt racism, and his moral challenges. Uh, and that, that, that kind of surprised me. What are, just, just, just given that uh, litany, uh, what are some additional impediments that prohibit us as a nation from, from turning the corner on, on, on the progress you've articulated about, about this power dynamic as it relates to racism? What are some of the impediments? For? Well, I do have a lot of faith and I have a lot of encouragement from the younger generation. I grew up at a time when to have a black football coach or uh, a black commentator such as yourself was was an event. If you ever saw an African-American on on broad television, it was an event in the black community. Now you have the younger generation who grow up, white athletes have no problems being coached by black coaches. We see African-Americans who are Open Winfrey, for example, are multi-million, as I believe she's a, she's a billionaire with a B. That would have been unprecedented even 25 or 30 years ago. So based on what I saw with the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, there were almost as many uh, Euro-American young people involved in that movement as there were people of color. That would have been unprecedented. As a matter of fact, I think I saw people from the Amish community marching in the Black Lives Matter movement. So I think there's less of a tolerance for things that would have been a tradition 25 or 30 years ago. But we still have a ways to go because when you're talking about empowering African-Americans and other people of color, that means there are going to be other people who are accustomed to being empowered are going to have to share that power. And that's that's what the issue has always been. If you have power, if you have influence, if you have political clout, you can create a life space that is conducive. Mm. And sometimes that means there's a, a different type of life space that may be less conducive to people who have been accustomed to having advantages. And that's hard to give up. It's very difficult to give up. Now, on the other side of that continuum, I would imagine it's easy, especially for those on the outside, to assume that every member of the group is in lockstep with the issues that you articulated. But race is such a powerful uh, emotional issue that uh, it affects uh, people very differently regardless of ethnicity. And and I'd like to have you speak to that, that we're not in lockstep. Well, unfortunately, the first things, according to some of the literature I've read, that uh, people of color who arrive in the United States, they figure out who the ends are because they don't want to be associated with that group. So they will devote themselves and their traditions, their norms, many times their political views with the power structure. 
because as long as the oppression is directed at African-Americans, then that may vantage to persons who are not white, but not African-American as well. And unfortunately, uh, in a lot of the work that I've done, because prejudice and racism is so, so embedded in our DNA, unfortunately, you find victims who may side with power structures that victimize their own groups. Uh, such s similar type of individuals that we mentioned in uh, California, Wardell, for example, um, our, Supreme Court, our Supreme Court justice, these individuals have no difficulty supporting political movements, legislation that is counter to the welfare of their own racial and ethnic group. And I started this back in maybe 1990, talking about this issue of victimism by the victims or racism. By the, and I, I got a lot of pushback on that until I was called to testify as an expert witness for what would be considered America's first case of colorism African-Americans. African-Americans may exhibit the same kinds of behaviors that we normally attribute to racism, but we do it on the basis of color. So we oftentimes are guilty of acting out similar behavior that we oftentimes criticize Euro-Americans for exhibiting toward Africans. And that's because we're American, unfortunately. That's how, that's how intense this is. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Michigan State University Professor Ronald Hall, um, your home of the Spartans. Am I right about that? Yes, sir. Okay, okay. Prof Professor Hall, how do you account for those that wish to suggest whenever racism bubbles up beyond the norm, how do you account for those who wish to say that racism is over, it's solved? Why are you dredging that up? How do you address that? Well, Pretty much it's obvious uh, if you are not given to facts, scientific evidence, uh, justice, if you're not given to those ideals, then it, it's, it's difficult to perceive, particularly if you are not, have not experienced uh, overt racism, it's difficult to perceive it as a reality. In addition to that, it has political overtones. So if you acknowledge the existence of racism, which I think has been a major issue in this country, if you acknowledge the existence of racism, that might put you in a position where you're going to lose something. And a lot of that loss has to do with power. One of the things that, that I always advocate when I start classes at the beginning of the semester, I ask students, raise your hand if you are a racist, a sexist, or a homophobe. And I raise my hand, and maybe two or three other students will raise their hands as well. The point I'm trying to make is we are reluctant to take ownership of our transgressions. And when I admit to being a racist myself, I make that statement because I am born and raised in a racist culture. So there may be aspects of my personality that are racist that I don't recognize. But when I take ownership of that transgression, then it puts me in a frame of mind. I'm always open to criticism and I'm always open to make changes. It is the person in America and typically your typical American denies that they're racist. And when you deny that you're a racist, then your frame of mind is, well, I have no changes to make. Hmm. Other people are racist, not I. Hmm. Uh, that, that, that you remind me of the, uh, um, 
a quote by Augustine that says you should never fight evil as though it's something that existed outside of yourself. And that's what I'm hearing you say right there. Uh, exactly. Uh, exactly. Race, race uh, is, is a social construct. Uh, and No doubt. And, and America has attempted to justify this um, social construct, in my view, through the use of other mediums. Uh, for example, in the 18th, 19th centuries, uh, universities sought to prove that the black brain was inferior to the white brain. Then you have um, legal efforts like the Dred Scott decision. Are we in any way still constrained by those efforts? I think so, but as I mentioned a little earlier, I think it's become a little more sophisticated uh, to be able to make your point about racism in the courts and many other venues in the country. Uh, it's becoming more difficult because the, those individuals who have racist tendencies are becoming a lot more sophisticated in the way that they carry out their racist policies and racist laws. It's such that the sentiment is still there. It, it, it's been with us, and I am optimistic. And again, as I mentioned about younger people, I think they come from a different environment, so they're amenable to things that would have been impossible with their parents. They have a different kind of racial experience. They have black friends. In the, in the years of segregation, uh, that wasn't possible with their parents. So what was said about African-American people was true for them because they had no other options. And so now when you have African-Americans in politics, African, as a matter of fact, you mentioned the last president of the United States, for example, Barack Obama, that was something that would have been impossible for many of the young people's parents to even conceive of. But for them, it's just a norm. So you also have in the aftermath of Loving versus the State of Virginia, uh, which legalize interracial marriages, you have a growing interracial population. So the divisions between African-Americans and Euro-Americans and other people of color in a more diverse society vis-a-vis -vis immigration, I think it's a new day. We, again, as I said, I think we have a ways to go, but I think it's a new day. We're faced with circumstances that are unprecedented. And, and I'm optimistic for that reason. Well, what I'm hearing you say, sir, is that right now it seems to me that we're, based on your last answer, we're sort of in tension with a collective immaturity based on generations who, who, who weren't exposed to the type of things you just talked about versus a collective maturity which sees these things as a black president or an interracial couple as no big deal. Is that, is that the tension where we're at right now? Yes, I, I think we're at a turning point, and usually there's a saying that the darkest night is just before dawn, and I think we're making a, in the process of making a major transition, not only with respect to race, but respect to gender, respect to people's sexual orientation. These persons are becoming more and more uh, empowered, more active, um, in protest movements, et cetera. So that element that once wanted a segregated, homogeneous society is losing power. And we expect uh, some demographers anticipate that by the year, maybe 2040, 2043, we are going to be a majority minority country. And I think that 
racist element is well probably more aware of that than most of us because that's going to be a pivotal, a critical time. And you see what's going on in the state of Georgia. Um, Miss, uh, the, the lady who organized that, uh, that movement turned the state of Georgia from red to blue. That's, that's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. Miss Abrams uh, has led a movement primarily occupied by African-American women. And that's something else that is unprecedented. Women have, have not been empowered uh, in years past the way they are today. And Miss Abrams is just one of the African-American women who have led that movement. As a matter of fact, I believe those who started the Black Lives Matter movement, they were black women. So these things are unprecedented. These things bring new experiences, people realizing that they have power that they didn't know that they had. So they're in a better position. They're optimistic. They're inspirational to bring about changes. Mm. Uh, uh, Stand on that thread. It, it, it It is my belief that America has a single narrative, one story. However, that narrative possesses multiple perspectives, and many of those perspectives, in my view, have not been included up to the present point in what has been presented. And so the American story leaves out a whole lot. And what I'm hearing you say, that there are new voices coming in that are adding to that American narrative, and it's creating some measure of discomfort and pushback. Oh, no doubt. Uh, as a member of the Academy, I see it happening on a daily basis. It was once upon a time, if you consider W.E.B. Du Bois, who most of us are familiar with, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, was an African-American who had two PhDs, but W.E.B. Du Bois would not been able to get an interview at a PWI, which is a predominantly white institution. And here I sit, I certainly cannot hold a candle to W.E.B. Du Bois, but I work at a major institution and I'm employed as a professor at the rank of full. That's That would have been unheard of in Du, in du Bois' time. So you have a lot of black academics like myself generating literature, generating an alternative view. I highly recommend that people read not only white evangelical racism, but there was a book that came out recently written by a African-American woman named Jones Rogers. And the book is titled, They Were Her Property. Now, when we think about slavery, we normally attribute the perils of slavery to Euro-American men. But according to this historian, white women were not only involved, they were no less, no more brutal and oppressive toward white, toward black people than white men. But because of this this pedestal of purity that we associate with white American women, that story was never told. That story would not have been told if it were not for the input of black academics, black scholars like Miss Jones. So that is something that's also new. We have an alternative narrative. The book, um, The Bell Curve that came out in 1994, written by Hernstein and Mary, was essentially about 600-page book about black intellectual inferiority. And occasionally, I have to make reference to that source in some of the classes that I teach. And I advise my students in critiquing that book something that I've never heard outside of my classes. And while the 
I guess the academy that devises IQ tests, Stanford, Binet, etc., their scholars and what they acknowledge about African-American and white IQ differentials, that's about a 15-point differential. That, that's a statistical fact. What I've never heard anyone mention and acknowledge, and I'm always glad to make this point in a class when there's black students, the highest IQ on record was by a nine-year-old African-American female. And that is written up in the journals in 1943. Most people don't know that. But as an academic, I have to read the literature and I get paid to research. So I know this. I don't know. I probably very few people in the country know that. Herrnstein and Mary never, never mentioned that. They never rationalized that. Hmm. And when you can, her IQ was so high that they could not measure it. So from that perspective, in my mind, she will always have the highest IQ. At nine years old, she was bright enough to be a sophomore, a freshman at a major university. But and, and, and also the journal article that makes reference to this young lady mentioned that she was of unmixed African descent. So that mulatto hypothesis that we hear sometimes, that becomes irrelevant. Right. That becomes irrelevant. Uh, I want to switch gears ever so slightly and talk and raise something with you that I just, a quote that I heard from um, the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia, um, Justin Fairfax. And he, he's, um, he has been uh, indicted for sex allegations. And the governor, I think, I think, I think it was Terry McAuliffe, the, the, the governor uh, or, or former governor, said that he should, should resign. And Fairfax, uh, and Fairfax responded by saying that he was treated like George Floyd or Emmett Till in asking oh. to resign. Now, I don't know about the lieutenant governor's guilt or innocence, but, but I felt that, that he was being rather cavalier on some very significant issues in African-American history. And, and I wonder, does that type of language, because he's a high-profile person, does that undermine what cases like George Floyd and Emmett Till are about. I think it does. It's just another example of how black pain and suffering has been trivialized to equate accusations of sexual misconduct with a man who had his life crushed on video and made public all over the world to equate the two is really unfair, inaccurate, and it's Again, a trivialization of black pain and suffering. I don't know how you could compare any suffering that the Euro-American community at large has suffered in this country. I don't know how that would ever compare with what African-Americans uh, have endured. Oh, oh, and sorry. in reading the book... I'm sorry, uh, Professor. Let me just say, let me just clarify. Uh, Mr. Fairfax is African-American. That's why, I, that's why I brought it up. I'm sorry, I didn't... I didn't give you that part i'm sorry that's my fault well i kind of i kind of assumed that he was but uh i still take the position okay. that that's a trivial a trivialization of black pain and suffering regardless of what the racial background is you you just don't compare that but if i'm going to make reference to that pain and suffering in a racial context as we mentioned a little earlier you have african-americans who may not be pro-african-american 
And as a fact of the matter is, there are white Americans who are more pro-African American than some African Americans. I would point to the existence of a man, an abolitionist by the name of John Brown. He was a white American who gave the ultimate sacrifice in white, I'm sorry, in black liberation. And then you have other people, for example, who informed on Nat Turner during Nat Turner's rebellion. So you've always had some element, not only of the African-American community, but this happens with all oppressed populations. You'll always find one or two people who uh, are willing to sacrifice the welfare and well-being of their own group for personal gain. And that may be what's happening with the governor, uh, lieutenant governor in Virginia. When you think of race, and I guess more more broadly racism at its core, whose problem is it to solve? Is, is it the burden, in your view, of the people of color? Is it the burden of the dominant culture? Is it the responsibility of the victim to heal the victimizer? How, how do you, ultimately, whose problem is this? Well, number one, I think it's a problem for all of us, uh, victims and victimizers. But the responsibility for solving and resolving racism in this country is on the shoulders of Americans. Because in some capacity, in, in some way, every American contributes to the existence of racism. You could say that victims can all, always do more. You can say that the victimizers can do more. But at the end of the day, I think we all benefit on some level. This country is, I guess, orchestrated or devised by all of us as, as Americans. And I think we need to recognize that we have a common goal as Americans to carve out what we want this society to be. So that puts the onus on all of us. You could argue that maybe we could expect that the Euro-American or the power structure community would, would do more, but that's, that's neither here or there at the end of the day. I think all of us have to play a role. Our roles may differ, but we all have to contribute. Are we even, in your view, even addressing the problem the issue in a way that we can turn a corner? Or is there still some arrest development and how we're even addressing it? I mean, uh, we're talking about racism and communal with prejudice. I, 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 your thoughts, sir. I'm sorry. Well, again, I, you know, I hate to be re- too redundant, but I go back to what I said initially. We have to own our transgressions. We have to own the fact that we're racist and sexist. We have to own that because if we start from that point, we can see reason to make changes. But there was a, a movement, I don't know, came out maybe in the 70s and the 80s on the evangelical Christian movement, a colorblind society. A colorblind society is just an anti-racist racism that continues what we're trying to end, which is prejudice and discrimination. So if you don't recognize that we're a racist society, if you see yourself as, and some people speak of it being colorblind as if that's, that's, a, that's some, some kind of moral advantage. But if you, if you promote a colorblind society, and I, I'm no doubt at some point we want to get to that, but in an era where racism is all around us, and you're pursuing a mindset that suggests racism doesn't exist, then number one, you won't be able to prove, you won't be able to gather any evidence on racism that does exist to prove your point to end it. So when you talk about a colorblind society or a non-racist society, 
I think you impair the ability of those who are victimized by racism to do something about it. And those who are the victimizers in racism don't acknowledge its existence. But the reality is you can't have change and comfort are not things on major issues and not things that coexist. So we've had this issue since America's inception and even before. Yes. So it's going to require some discomfort that many question that America has the maturity to embrace. Yes. And, you know, you jog my memory to another point that I think is critical uh, to make here. And again, this pertains to the number of black scholars that are coming up. The name of another scholar who's, I think it, I think she was a historian at Princeton. She was an African-American woman and she wrote a book. I'm, 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 blanking on her name, but the title of the book that she wrote was called The History of White People, and the author was Nell Painter. Yeah. And uh, racism is so endemic that we think it always was. Well, when I read her book, I was shocked. When Americans arrived, or essentially Europeans arrived in America, what Dr. Painter says, they weren't white. Europeans were arrived here, they weren't white. Well, what were they? They were Irish, they were British, they were Dutch, English, and you had maybe one or two percent of the European population who arrived here, and this was before 1776, who were wealthy. The rest of the immigrants, European immigrants, were what we call working class, so they're essentially poor people. Who did they associate with? They associated with African Americans, Native Americans, and other poor people. And in poverty, people do what they have to do to survive. So these poor immigrants from Europe, together with people of color, particularly Africans, began raiding the plantations and robbing wealthy Euro-Americans. And this is where the brilliance of that racist movement comes about, because this wealthy population realized that their days were numbered. They either had to return to Europe or they had to find a way to get those poor Euro-Americans to identify with them. And according to Dr. Painter, that's when poor Euro-Americans, poor Europeans became white. If you were white, society said you could carry a gun, you could testify in court, you could sell alcohol. But if you were not white, then you didn't have those privileges. So that began a separation between blacks and whites, poor people in this country, that the upper classes have manipulated. When you first arrived in America, the vote did not go to just white people. It went to propertied white men. That was the power structure. That was the source. And that divide and conquer strategy that they put in place, why I say it's brilliant, because it's 100 years later. Hmm. So, so are we used, so that, if, uh, to take your last point, are, are, is race a tool used to mitigate the, the sort of organic alliances of class. Oh, it's no, it's no doubt about it. I've always thought we talk a lot about race, but that's just the terminology that we use. Really, what when we talk about power and equality, it's really about class. It is really about class. So the upper class, dominantly white in this culture, have convinced the Euro Americans that they are white and that's their gift. There was once upon a time in this country when you were white, 
poor otherwise, uh, that qualified as a talent, that qualified as a skill. And still people think that today. So you have Euro-Americans, for example, who bet from Obamacare, but they oppose it because they have been convinced by the power structures that Obamacare is a program for black people. When people in Appalachia needed much as much as anyone. So that divide and conquer strategy is, and I think that has a lot to do with our, with our problems here. Professor Ronald Hall, Michigan State University. Sir, I, I want to thank you for joining me today on the public rally. We've much appreciated your wise insight, sir. Thank you for having me. Stay tuned as I speak with NYU professor Ruth Bengia about her latest project, Lucid, that's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome back. Since the election of Donald Trump, Americans have become more aware of the notion of authoritarianism. There has been a noticeable rise globally in authoritarian rule. Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who teaches history at NYU, is a frequent contributor to CNN. Her latest book, Strongmen, From Mussolini to the Present, examines how liberal leaders use corruption, violence, propaganda, and machismo to stay in power, which we discussed earlier this year on The Public Morality. She now has launched a new site, Lucid, a publication about the myriad ways to define abuses of power and how to counter them. Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me back on. Tell me about Lucid and why you decided to launch it now. So Lucid is a newsletter. It's going to, it comes out three times a week and uh, on uh, threats to democracy and abuses of power and how to counter them. And it's, it's an outgrowth of all the writing and interviews I've been doing for the public. And I've been I've given over 300 interviews the last four years and, and probably close to a hundred essays and op-eds. And it, I wanted to, to be able to do a kind of writing and people more directly um, and kind of grow a community and have live chats and have something more interactive um, than it is, is possible on some very big sites, for example. And the other thing is that the way that, you know, the media platforms we depend on are changing, that algorithms often determine what people see rather than their own interests. So starting a newsletter, many already in existence, um, is a way of getting around that and, and reaching people with like-minded interests. Um. To, to, to that to that end, uh, I know we had you on, uh, I don't know if it was, it was early, I think it was earlier this year, maybe late last year, we had you on when Strongman came out. How, how much did Strongman influence the creation of Lucid? Uh, Lucid is an outgrowth of the book, for sure, uh, because the concerns of, of Lucid, which is abuses of power of many types, um, and I didn't want limit lucid to threats to democracy because some of the abuses that affect us every day are, for example, harassment at work, right? Or housing discrimination. And these are these are 
abuses of power that could be racially or gender discrimination that are larger than a threat to democracy, and they happen in all political contexts. So doing doing the research for loose for for strongmen, which talked about, for example, virility um, and 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 sex exploitation, made me realize that we 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 can't the models of power that are toxic um, just to confine them to to saying that only Republicans do this or only enemies of democracy around the world is not sufficient. So it's an outgrowth of writing the book and a desire to um, to go further to investigate um, models of power that can be more conducive to social justice. Well, I, I want to I have there's one thing I want to I want to come back to the the surrounding um, strongman. As I recall, when we had you on, um, the um, you wrote the book uh, before the 2020 election because we had you on right after that, and January yeah. January six was not in our vocabulary. <laughs> From your perspective, thinking about the creation of of, of Lucid, the influence of strongman. What are some of your January 6th takeaways that we need to be thinking about going forward? So I had to turn in the book in in the summer, and I was able to add the events of the summer, the the Black Lives Matter protest, and very importantly for January 6th, the government repression, the the whole theater of threat that was staged in D.C. with the flooding of D.C. with all the unmarked troops and bundling people into unmarked vans in Portland and elsewhere. And I saw this at the time as a rehearsal for things that could take place around the election. So, so that part of strongman, you know, flows into January 6th. And I had to also kind of, I didn't know who would win the election, but I was able based on all the things I knew about, leaders like Trump who cannot leave office um, quietly. It's, it's like a psychological death for them to have to leave office. And so in whatever context it is, they, they always um, create destruction as they leave. And so I, I predicted that Trump would, you know, even stage some kind of shock events and disruption and that he wouldn't want to leave legally, basically. So January 6th, I, I, I really see as um, a direct outgrowth of the cultivation of, of white supremacy and all kinds of extremist tendencies that Trump was doing for, for five years, if you, count the, if you count the campaign, his presidential campaign in 2015. And I wasn't surprised at all when it turned violent. Um, and there's lots to say about what he said at the rally and and. And what is happening now is also predictable that there's a cover-up, um, an attempt to turn the violence into hugs and kisses. It's Trump's latest statement that the rioters didn't, didn't hurt police. They gave them hugs and kisses. All of this is very predictable. Hmm. Now, I'm assuming, speaking specifically about Lucid, that um, you chose that name for a specific reason. Could you explain? Yes. I Lucid... It comes from, you know, the, the Latin verb illumination. And I, I, as anyone does in starting a new enterprise, what you call it is really important. It's part of the whole, you know, manifesto, the program. And 
am an educator and I, I, I teach full time and I also educate through writing. So Lucid is definitely an, part of this work of civic education, of educating people and learning with them, dialoguing. And that's what the live chats are for also about how propaganda works, how corruption works. And so there's that part of um, being becoming illuminated in that sense. There's also, I, I am a person of faith and there, you could also think about the way that there's a, a kind of spiritual illumination that can occur. Um, it could be, and I think that faith, it could be civic faith if for the secular minded, like faith in patriotism, faith in just civic values, or it could be something else. But I think that faith is very important uh, part of democracy protection. And so, so Lucid, for those inclined, has that spin as well. Now, where are we globally on just the idea of authoritarian rule? I know it was once on the rise. Has it tempered? Has it declined? Where, where are we right now in that trend? It's, we're in this very like fateful and dramatic moment globally because, you know, authoritarianism is spreading. And uh, the, there's a, the, a late a new report says that over 60% of people around the world live in some kind of illiberal rule, some form of it. And remember, these are on a continuum from uh, a place that is where democracy is decaying, like in Brazil or as it was in the United States under Trump, up to places like China, which are have kind of one-party states that are more typical of 20th century, we could say. So that's going on. But it's that we're also in a period where more people are protesting than ever before. And until the uh, coronavirus came um, in 2019, a study um, by the Center for International and Strategic Studies showed that more people were out protesting than ever before. And they called what they called the surge of activism unprecedented historically in its scope and size. So you see around the world, and even with coronavirus, did not stop Black Lives Matter protests, did not stop uh, Nigerians protesting police brutality, and is not stopping protesters in Myanmar. Other places, uh, very heroic, you know, um, demonstrations in Hong Kong have been mostly shut down. So those resistors are mostly in exile or in jail now. But it's it's like the collision of these two giant forces. And of course, the spread of repression will provoke uh, the spread of resistance to it. So that's kind of where we are at the big picture level. We've had you on several times and um, we reviewed some of your books. And I was wondering, is it fair to suggest that democratic rule to some degree, is it a luxury, especially in times of crisis, is there just an organic appeal toward authoritarian rule, and how, and how do you see that? That's a great question. At, at any time, there's a lot of studies on authoritarianism say that um, in any population anywhere, there'll be about 30% of people who have authoritarian inclinations. And this is judged by ways they think about parenting, for example, or about institutions, about uh, rule of law, or, or following the rules, let's say, not the rule of law. And, but in order for that, those sentiments to get 
um, activated, which is a word Karen Stenner uses in her work. Um, you, you need a leader and you need a leader to emerge who will embody those values, those authoritarian values, and also a set of conditions where people feel that their status is threatened or they don't like where society is going. So uh, often it's been demographic change where people feel that in the, in the case of Euro, Euro-American places, they feel that you know, um, non-whites and non-Christians are getting too powerful in society. So we were set for this in America with eight years of Barack Obama being president and uh, he legalized same-sex marriage. That's another through, th- you know, uh, what's it called? Through theme, through line, and, and also um, gender equality in the military. All these things were seen as a threat by many. So in those, in those situations, many people want to gravitate to somebody who says, I will fix it for you. And it's easier for some people to want to give up their rights to somebody who says, I am your voice. I will take care of it for you. And, and when you see all the things that Donald Trump said right on schedule, it's a case study in how authoritarian impulses can be activated. So those are the situations that you know, make for uh, people to decide that they prefer this kind of uh, rule. Now, is democratic, you know, is it a luxury? I wouldn't put it that way because what happens over and over again is that these authoritarian-minded leaders lead societies to destruction. And then only too late, people discover that they were taking their freedoms for granted. Um, but usually the cycle has to play out first. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to play the, the, the devil's advocate here and, and uh, po- in the following question. Uh, in America, the notion of abuse of power is something that we have traditionally associated with the Nixon administration and Watergate. And I can certainly see someone saying Watergate was an aberration, as was Trump, evident by his defeat. So given those two things, isn't Lucid, uh, the creation of Lucid, I should say, about two years too late? How would you respond to that? You could say it's late or you could say it's right on time because... Um, although we have voted out Trump, which is a very rare thing that we stopped a process of autocratic um, capture in the middle, um, very, very frightening things were being set up to be done. And I'm the first to always, I'm accused of being Pollyanna-ish when I keep mentioning that we have to hold on to this. We did this. We haven't had much time to celebrate it because of all the things Trump did to try and stay in office. But we voted out this uh, autocrat in the making. But uh, it's too easy now to rest on our laurels. And many people, in part because they're traumatized, they're exhausted, they see that Biden's there and they don't want to really deal with the fact that Trump is gone from office, but he's not, he still has hold over the GOP. And in fact, the GOP have embraced, uh, it's not just embracing his methods, because they always were <laughs> Jim Crow voter suppression. But they have invested very heavily now in anti-democracy. So in a sense, the threat is higher than ever because they are on a mission to win back the White House. And Trump has told them that you can be lawless. You can be openly racist to a degree maybe they didn't think they could be before. You can be openly corrupt. You can be openly misogynist. You can be homophobic, anti-trans, and you can still 
he may not, he lost the presidential election, but he kept over 70 million votes. So the danger is more than ever. And so I started Lucid now so that we don't rest on our laurels. And what I try to do is uh, I started with an essay called Drain the Swamp about corruption, how the very leaders who promise anti-corruption and reform and from Mussolini to Trump end up being the most corrupt. I try and, and alternate kind of hard-hitting pieces that have tough truths with inspiring things. So this week's was resistance. For those um, who are listening to this broadcast and uh, would like to visit Lucid, um, first of all, g- give us the site, and then, and, but, but more importantly, tell us what, what, what they'll find. So it's, if you go to my, if you follow me on Twitter at Ruth Ben Giat, or you go to my site, uh, www.ruthbengiat.com, you will find a sign-up sheet, uh, sign-up form, and it's free. The way that Substack, it's a Substack company newsletter, uh, it'll say, please subscribe, but subscribing is free. You can also become a paid subscriber, but for the, for right, all content is free. So it's signing up is the same as subscribing. And what what I the format I have is um, is it, it, it's three times a week, and it's an essay, original essay by me that draws on my years of research and my years of writing op eds, um, all of the knowledge uh, that I've also you know um, accumulated over the years, and then a, an interview with somebody who is on the front lines of anti-corruption, of resistance, of democracy protection, uh, of uh, fighting for the climate, or anti-disinformation, because people who are actively fighting against the uh, attempt to impose false histories, false narratives, and to cloud our brains with attacks on the truth. So Lucid is about having a situation of informed awareness rather than ceding to like these fogs of fear and fogs of conspiracy theories and falsehoods. So the interviews and the essays are generally in the same theme so that uh, readers will have a sense of that from different perspectives. And then Fridays, there are live chats with me where we discuss those things and anything else uh, people want. Today we had one and we discussed how propaganda works. I took questions and we, we had a lot of very interesting exchanges about propaganda. Well, as, as a subscriber, uh, I will uh, be the first to say that, that, that um, I, I love the work you're doing. I love how you're expanding the, the, our, our collective understanding of the abuse of power. And we all wish you the very best. That's why we wanted to have you on. So, Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, NYU, CNN contributor, Lucid, author. Am I missing anything? Thank you so much uh, for joining us once again on The Public Morality. Thank you so much for your support. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, 
We may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. <laughs>